1: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This week, we have a new knight to add to the realm. From here forward, he shall be known as Moshe the Melon Slayer. And for his dedicated service of once again donating to the show, David Von Weaselballs has been promoted from his current position to being Lord High Viscount of Throop. Congratulations, Dave. If you wish to join these storied ranks, head on over to the show's website, to Westphalia com. Go to the store page, and you can donate either through PayPal, or you can sign up to be a Patreon, as both of today's honorees happened to do, which is really excellent. And uh, we're trying for 40 new patrons, and if we do, there will be some sort of prize that I'm working on. So, check that out. Before we get to the episode, I should add that... I am a member of the Agora Podcast Network, a network of like-minded podcasters. For the month of November, I have so far failed to promote Elias Bohadad's History of Islam. As the name implies, Elias is covering the history of the rise of Islam, from murky origins in the deserts of Arabia to becoming a world power and a world religion. This is a huge hole in the history podcasting landscape. For some reason, we can't seem to keep non-European podcasts going, with the exception of ones focused on China and Japan, so please do check out his show. I really respect his narrative flow and his provision of a deep cultural background. So with that out of the way, let's on with the show.
0: Why to think of it, we're in the same tale still. It's going
1: on. Don't the great tales never end? No, they never end as tales, said Frodo. But the people in them come and go when their parts ended. J.R.R. Tolkien's The Two Towers
0: Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning
1: Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and I am your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. This is Episode 25, gadeshi Nomal. Last time out, we saw the final confrontation between the young Emperor Lambert and all the old foes of the Gadeshi. Each in turn was finally neutralized or destroyed. Arnulf of Carinthia, head of the Frankish Legitimists, was drawn deep into Italy without securing his rule, and when he suffered a stroke, all his advances quickly were split between Lambert and Berengar of Friuli. After Lambert beat and imprisoned the slightly traitorous Adelbert of Tuscany, he had himself re-crowned as emperor. In the process, the bizarre spectacle of the Cadaver Synod unfolded, when the corpse of Pope Formosus was exhumed and put on trial by his overzealous successor, Stephen VI., Ultimately, Berengar of Friuli could not maintain peace with the Gadeshi, and he attacked them, but Lambert ambushed Berengar and took him captive. Shortly thereafter, Lambert died while hunting. Fortune was not quite yet done with the Gadeshi. The timeline here is a little hard to pin down, but either before or slightly after the death of Lambert, Guy IV of Spoleto, that younger son of Guy the Rage, was finally able to extricate himself from southern Italy, where he had been besieging some nobody Lombard. Taking some men, Guy headed to Rome to meet with his cousin. But on the way, one of his main retainers, Elberic, had him assassinated. Elberic had had a rapid rise. He first appears in the records as a page under Guy III, and by the time of Lambert, he was entrusted with a large army fighting in an independent command on the eastern coast. It's worth asking whether Alderic's treachery was part of a wider conspiracy. Chroniclers of the time period did suggest that Lambert's assassination was done at the instigation of Hugh of Provence. Having Guy IV also be assassinated at around the same time would be something of a coincidence, to put it mildly. But modern historians are somewhat unsure how to deal with the story of the assassination. The more reliable chroniclers, uh, notably Fulda, are somewhat dubious about the assassination story. The story we're told is that Hugh of Provence had had Lambert assassinated as revenge for his father, the unfortunate Count of Milan who had had his head nailed to a tree. And apparently, Hugh tried to talk up this rumor to support his claims to the throne. Spoiler alert. While Hugh certainly would have had motive and ability, there seems to be a feeling amongst the chroniclers that he was not the kind of guy whose word you could trust on that kind of thing, particularly since he didn't start talking about it until much, much later. Potential wider conspiracies aside, with Lambert and Guy IV dead, Albert took over the Duchy of Spoleto, just marched in and took it over. Berengar and Adelbert simply walked out of their prison, and Berengar resumed his claim to the imperial crown. Of course, Berengar recognized Alberic's claim to the duchy, and that was basically that, for the Gadeshi and for Italy. Whatever relations of the Gadeshi were left just disappear from the records. In all likelihood, they either fled into the Lombard lands, made their peace with Alberic, or found protection from some other source. This includes Angletrude, the awesome wife of Guy III and mother of Lambert, who'd ended up becoming a nun after her son's death. Altogether, kind of a sad, weird, anticlimactic end for our tale, but really, this is not the end. While this miniseries started as being about the Gadeshi. it was always intended as a way to humanize and explain the chaos that followed the death of Charlemagne. The ultimate goal is to set the playing board for the events of the Middle Ages in the key regions of Western and Central Europe, particularly in Italy and the Holy Roman Empire. Because it is the Holy Roman Empire, with its confusing constitution, unenforceable claims on Italy, and unclear origins that will be the setting for the majority of the Reformation. Remember the Wars of the Reformation? This shows about the Wars of the Reformation. <music> so, though our tale of the Gadeshi has anticlimactically and confusingly quantum-phased out of existence, the story of the origins of the Holy Roman Empire in Italy remains to be finished. Over the next two or so episodes, I'm going to wrap up the story of Italy by bringing it to the point where we cannot continue without discussing the Holy Roman Empire proper. At that point, I will move to discussing the Holy Roman Empire proper, its unclear origins, and re-establishment by the Atonian dynasty. All of these stories are massive in their own right, so I'm going to be skimming a bit. Hopefully you won't mind given my extensive detail on other subjects. But at this point, I'm eager to get to the thematic episodes and the end of the introduction. They're so temptingly in sight from a narrative standpoint, though, given my rate of production, we are realistically a year or so away from the end of the introduction. That year keeps moving forward, too, so... Anyway, what can you do? For today, I would like to take some time and reflect upon the Gadeshi themselves, and what they have shown us about life in the early Middle Ages. In the beginning, the Gadeshi were Frankish nobles, but what that means is honestly hard to decipher. They were not landed aristocrats, but they were part of a military caste in Frankish society. We will talk about this more in a later episode. What we do know is that by the time of Lambert of Nantes, they started the transition to landed aristocracy. For three generations, the elder branch of the Gadeshi family fought in and around the March Duchy of Nantes, first for the empire, then switching sides as seemed most beneficial. What's clear is that what had initially simply been intended as a military and political office became identified by the Gadeshi as a family possession. This process was deepened as the younger branch of the family followed Lothair south to Italy. As centralized government weakened, the Gadeshi and their fellow landlords were able to extract more and more rights from the Carolingian clan. The imperial family of Italy did try on several occasions to disinherit the Gadeshi, but their power base and absurd luck let them survive these attempts. Geddeshi power only grew, taking advantage of their position on an imperial border, even as the centralized government passed out of Italy and grew more and more anemic. Imperial concern moved from defending the church to trying vainly to hold the empire together, to simply trying to survive. By the time Arnulf took over, it had become clear that the central government could not hold it all, and a process of consolidation and eventual reconquest began. But this process led ultimately to the rupture of the Frankish body politic. As Arnulf simply tried to hold on to what he had, new kings and political zones of control popped up left and right. Chaos ensued everywhere, and the Viking and Saracen raiders swarmed in. This created opportunities for the wily Gadeshi who made a play at imperial power themselves, a play that might have succeeded were it not for that meddling church. Also, just bad luck, and the diseases brought about by the decay of the old Roman infrastructure. But the final end of the Gadeshi shows that something even more was going on in Italy. If Italy had been in any way cohesive, the Gadeshi would not have ended after Lambert's death. There may not have been direct male heirs, but the Gadeshi were well connected and prolific. Someone would have been able to take up the family mantle, but the structure simply wasn't there. It's not like there was a Gadeshi cousin who tried and failed, history just seems to show us that the Gadeshi just kind of faded off into the woodwork after this. Why? Well, on the one hand, they had overextended themselves. They were a single ducal family whose territory suddenly extended over all of northern Italy, and perhaps they were simply too dispersed to form into anything cohesive after the two deaths of 894. It may be that they stretched out to consolidate their new lands, and the sudden untimely shock broke them like a rubber band. But again, there's a bit more to it. A noteworthy thing about the Gadeshi, especially in comparison to behavior of later dynasties, is that they were fairly open about who they gave offices to. In other words, we see repeatedly in the reigns of Guy III and Lambert and Guy IV that they take on retainers and trust them with extensive authority, retainers who are not close relations. The Burgundian nobles that followed Guy back from Francia were noteworthy for their numerous military commands. While Guy IV had trusted the newly taken and potentially still hostile Lombard Principality of Benevento, to a local Lombard lord, who, well I should say was a marital relation, cannot have been that close. I mean, he wasn't even with Guy the Fourth army when he was given the position. Thus the ambush. This line of thought brings us to the biggest fly in the Gadeshi ointment, Alberic, who had started his career as a low ranking page of Guy the Third and somehow had amassed enough authority under Guy the Fourth, only a few years later, to organize and execute a successful coup taking over the stronghold of Gadeshi loyalty. Now, maybe the new focus of the Gadeshi on the north had seen that loyalty fray somewhat, but I think it's clear that the Gadeshi were living with a somewhat older form of social organization. The Gadeshi were trying to regain the centralized Germano-Roman state of Charlemagne, rewarding loyalty with offices and not keeping it all in the family, or at least using a more loose definition of family. In all likelihood, this was a big part of their rapid success, but clearly also contributed to their downfall. I think that without the treachery of Elderic, the Gadeshi would have regrouped, either under Guy IV or, even if he had died under some other relative, possibly under the capable regency of Angletrude. But that didn't happen. Elderic, either due to his participation in some larger conspiracy or due to his own brilliant emulation of the amoral Gadeshi had his lord blatantly assassinated, and then somehow claimed all that lord's possessions as his own. Just walked in one day and sat down in the chair and said, anyone got a problem with that? In many ways, this was the inevitable climax of the social forces unleashed by the Germanic invasions. Long since had the commoners seen their world shrink to adjust their village. The only security lay in having your family around you at all times, and in the promise of retribution that they represented. As Germanic and Avar and Viking and Saracen invasions sloshed across Europe, all faith was lost in central administration, and people turned to whatever the nearest armed force was for protection. Those forces began to build small forts in the north or fortified villages in the south, and soon they could resist all comers, at least for a time. As the Frankish Empire tore open, this process came for the nobility. Though they had tried to create a centralized empire overseen by a loyal military caste rewarded with offices and patronage, it was found that even this level of reward was not enough to guarantee loyalty. As offices became possessions, the nobles found that they had to depend on their own resources to protect themselves, and then that they had no need to be loyal to those who had given them their positions in the first place. The Gadeshi had played a huge role in, in creating this situation, at least insofar as exposing it by repeatedly revolting against Charles the Bald. And ultimately, I think they were destroyed by it. Once they achieved a certain level of success, the retainers that they had rewarded for loyalty turned against them, and the state didn't have the cohesion to hold together. Chris Wickham summarized this process very well in one of the last few pages of his book Early Medieval Italy, Central Power and Local Society, 400 to 1000. Quote, The Lombard and Carolingian states were monuments to the force of the ideology of the Roman Empire for the four centuries after it vanished in the mid-6th century. The Lombard and Carolingian kings tried to rule through large-scale public institutions without the economic backing of the taxation network of the empire that produced them. They had large landed bases in a new world where landowning was the only key to power. But so did their delegates, dukes, counts, and bishops, and the land of their delegates was independent of royal authority, or soon became so. The strongest force that allowed the kings to keep control of their kingdom was simply the consent of their aristocracies to the public ideal of the Roman state that their rulers wielded, and, as a result of this consent, the fact that the landowning classes structured their political action around that state. The state patronage network was, after all, extremely profitable to them. But, despite this, the private activities of these men slowly whittled the public power of the state away, and the state could do little to stop it. Consent the state could keep, but real control, equally part of the ideology of the empire, was harder. End quote. The tale of the next few episodes is going to be about how society dealt with the resultant chaos, notably in Italy, and how the last dregs of the old order were ground away, and how a new order emerged from the ruin. All that and some fresh new regnal names will be coming up next time on Wittenberg to Australia, The Wars of the Reformation.